Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, Chapter 2 of Meredith Nicholson's The House of a Thousand Candles. A Face at Sherry's Don't mention my name, and thou lovest me, said Lawrence Donovan, and he drew me aside, ignored my hand, and otherwise threw into our meeting a casual quality that was somewhat amazing in view of the fact that we had met last in Cairo. Allah il Allah. It was undoubtedly Larry. I felt the heat of the desert and heard the camel drivers cursing and our Sudanese guides plotting mischief under a window far away. Well, we both exclaimed interrogatively. He rocked gently back and forth with his hands in his pockets on the tile floor of the banking house. I had seen him stand thus once on a time when we had eaten nothing in four days. It was in Abyssinia, and our guides had lost us in the worst possible place with the same untroubled look in his eyes. And he had the same untroubled look in his eyes then as he did now. "'Please don't appear surprised or scared or anything, Jack,' he said, with his delicious intonation. "'I saw a fellow looking at me for an hour or so ago. He'd been at it several months, hence my presence here on these shores of the brave and the free. He's probably still looking, as he's a persistent devil. I'm here, as we may say, quite incog, staying at an east-side lodging house, where I shan't invite you to call on me, but I must see you. Dine with me tonight at Sherry's. Too big, too many people. Yeah, but therein lies security. If you're in trouble, I'm about to go into exile, and I want to eat one more civilized dinner before I go. Ah, perhaps it's just as well. Where are you off for? Not Africa again. No, just Indiana. One of the sovereign American states, as you ought to know. Indians? No, weren't at all dead. Pack train. Balloon? Automobile. Camels. How do you get there? Vanished ears. It's easy. It's not the getting there. It's not the dying of ennui after you're on the spot. Humph. What hour did you say for dinner? Seven o'clock. Meet me at the entrance. If I'm at large, allow me to precede you through the door and don't follow me on the street, please. He walked away, his gloved hands clasped lazily behind him, lounged out upon Broadway and turned toward the battery. I waited until he disappeared and then I took an uptown car. My first meeting with Lawrence Donovan was in Constantinople at a cafe where I was dining. He got into a row with an Englishman and knocked him down. It was not my affair but I liked the ease and definiteness with which Larry put his foe out of commission. I learned later that it was a way he had. The Englishman meant well enough, but he could not, of course, know the intensity of Larry's feeling about the unhappy lot of Ireland. In the beginning of my own acquaintance with Donovan, I sometimes argued with him, but I soon learned better manners. He quite converted me to his own notion of Irish affairs, and I was as hot an advocate as he of head-smashing as a means of restoring Ireland's lost prestige. My friend, the American Consul General at Constantinople, was not without a sense of humor, and I easily enlisted him in Larry's behalf. The Englishman thirsted for vengeance and invoked all the powers. He insisted with reason that Larry was a British subject and that the American Consul had no right to give him asylum, a point that was, I understand, thoroughly well-grounded in law and fact. Larry maintained, on the other hand, that he was not English, 
but Irish, and that, as his country maintained no representative in Turkey, it was his privilege to find refuge wherever it was offered. Larry was always the most plausible of human beings, and between us, he, the American consul, and I, we made an impression and got him off. I didn't realize until later that the real joke lay in the fact that Larry was English-born and that his devotion to Ireland was purely sentimental and quixotic. His family had, to be sure, come out of Ireland sometime in the dim past and settled in England, but when Larry reached years of knowledge, if not of discretion, he cut Oxford and insisted on taking his degree at Dublin. He even believed, or thought he believed, in banshees. He allied himself during his university days with the most radical and turbulent advocates of a separate national existence for Ireland, and occasionally spent a month in jail for rioting. But Larry's instincts were scholarly. He made a brilliant record at the university, and then, at twenty-two, he came forth to look at the world, and liked it exceedingly well. His father was a busy man, and he had other sons. He granted Larry an allowance and told him to keep away from home until he got ready to be respectable. So, from Constantinople, after a tour of Europe, we together crossed the Mediterranean in search of the flesh pots of lost kingdoms, spending three years in the pursuit. We parted at Cairo on excellent terms. He returned to England and later to his beloved Ireland, for he had blithely sung the wildest Gaelic songs in the darkest days of our adventures, and never lost his love for the sod, as he apostrophized and capitalized his adopted country. Larry had the habit of immaculateness. He emerged from his east side lodging house that night clothed properly and wearing the gentlemanly air of peace and reserve that is so wholly incompatible with his disposition to breed discord and indulge in riot. When we sat down for a leisurely dinner at Sherry's, we were not, I modestly maintain, a forbidding pair. We, if I may drag myself into the matter, are both the trifle under the average height, sinewy, nervous, and just then, trained fine. Our lean, clean-shaven faces were well-browned, mine wearing a fresh coat for my days on the steamer's deck. Larry had never been in America before, and the scene had for both of us the charm of a novel spectacle. I've always maintained, in talking to Larry of nations and races, that the Americans are the handsomest and best-put-up people in the world, and I believe he was persuaded of it that night as we gazed with eyes long unaccustomed to splendor upon the great company assembled in the restaurant. The lights, the music, the variety, and richness of the costumes of the women, the many unmistakably foreign faces, wrought a welcome spell on senses inured to hardship in the waste and dreary places of earth. Now, tell me the story, I said. Have you done murder? Is the offense treasonable? It was a tenant's row in Galway. I smashed a constable, he answered. I smashed him pretty hard, I dare say, from the row they kicked up in the newspapers. I lay low for a couple of weeks, caught a boat to Queenstown, and here I am, waiting for a chance to get back to the sod without going back in irons. You are certainly born to be hanged, Larry. You'd better stay in America. There's more room here than anywhere else, and it's not easy to kidnap a man in America and carry him off. "'Possibly not, and yet the situation isn't wholly tranquil,' he said, transfixing a bit of pompano with his fork. "'Kindly note the florid gentleman at your right, at the table with four. He's sitting next to the lady in pink. 
"'It may interest you to know that he's the British consul.' "'Yeah, that's interesting, but not important. "'You don't for a moment suppose—' "'That he's looking for me?' "'Nah, not at all. "'But he undoubtedly has my name on his tablets. "'The detective that's here following me around is pretty dull. "'He lost me this morning while I was talking to you in the bank.' Later on, I had the pleasure of trailing him for an hour or so until he finally brought up at the British consul's office. Thanks. No more of the fish. Let us banish care. I wasn't born to be hanged, and as I'm a political offender, I doubt whether I can be deported if they lay hands on me. He watched the bubbles in his glass dreamily, holding it up in his slim, well-kept fingers. Tell me something of your own immediate present and future, he said. I made the story of my grandfather Glenarm's legacy as brief as possible, for brevity was a definite law of our intercourse. A year, you say, with nothing to do but fold your hands and wait? It doesn't sound awfully attractive to me. I'd rather do without the money. Ah, but I intend to do some work, I answered. I owe it to my grandfather's memory to make good, if there's any good in me. Ah, the sentiment's worthy of you, Glenarm, he said mockingly. "'What do you see? A ghost?' "'I must have started slightly when I suddenly saw Arthur Pickering not twenty feet away. "'A party of half a dozen more had risen, "'and Pickering and a girl were detached from the others for a moment. "'She was young, quite the youngest in the group about Pickering's table. "'A certain girlishness of height and outline may have been emphasized "'by her juxtaposition to Pickering's heavy figure. "'She was in black, with white showing at neck and wrists.' a somber contrast to the other women of the party who were arrayed with a degree of splendor. She had dropped her van, and Pickering stooped to pick it up. In the second that she waited, she turned carelessly toward me, and our eyes met for an instant. Very likely she was Pickering's sister, and I tried to reconstruct his family, which I'd known in my youth, but I couldn't place her. As she walked out before him, my eyes followed her, the erect figure, free and graceful, but with a charming dignity and poise, and the gold of her fair hair glittering under her black toque. Her eyes, as she turned them full upon me, were the saddest, loveliest eyes I'd ever seen, and even in that brilliant, crowded room I felt their spell. They were fixed in my memory indelibly, mournful, dreamy, and wistful. In my absorption I totally forgot Larry. "'You're taking unfair advantage,' he observed quietly. "'Friends of yours?' "'The big chap in the lead is my friend Pickering,' I answered, and Larry turned his head slightly. "'Yes, I suppose you weren't looking at the women,' he observed dryly. "'I'm sorry I couldn't see the object of your interest. "'Bah! These men!' I laughed carelessly enough, but I was already summoning from my memory the grave face of the girl in black, her mournful eyes, the glint of gold in her hair. Pickering was certainly finding the pleasant places in this veil of tears, and I felt my heart hot against him. It hurts, this seeing a man you've never liked, succeeding where you have failed. Why didn't you present me? I'd like to make the acquaintance of a few representative Americans. I may need them to go bail for me. I answered, Pickering didn't see me for one thing, and for another he wouldn't go bail for you or me if he did. He isn't built that way. "'Larry smiled quizzically. "'You needn't explain further. "'The sight of the lady has shaken you. "'She reminds me of Tennyson. 
the star-like sorrows of immortal eyes. And the rest of it ought to be a solemn warning to you. Many drew swords and died, and calamity followed in her train. Bah! These women! I thought you were past all that. I don't know why a man should be past it at twenty-seven. Besides, Pickering's friends are strangers to me. But what became of that Irish Colleen you used to moon over? Her distinguishing feature, as I remember her photograph, was a short upper lip. You used to force her upon me frequently when we were in Africa. <laughs> when I got back to Dublin, I found that she'd married a brewer's son. Think of it. Put not your faith in a short upper lip. Her face never inspired any confidence in me. That will do, thank you. I'll have a bit more of that mayonnaise if the waiter isn't dead. I think you and your grandfather died in June. A letter advising you of the fact reached you at Naples in October. Has it occurred to you that there was quite an interim there? What, may I ask, was the executor doing all that time? You may be sure he was taking advantage of the opportunity to look for the red, red gold. I suppose you didn't give him a sound drubbing for not keeping the cables hot with inquiries for you. He eyed me in that disdain for my stupidity which I've never suffered from any other man. Well, no, I answered. To tell the truth, I was thinking of other things during the interview. Your grandfather should have provided a guardian for you, lad. You oughtn't to be trusted with money. Is that bottle empty? Well, if that person with the fat neck was your friend Pickering, I'd have a care of what's coming to me. I'd be quite sure that Mr. Pickering hadn't made away with the old gentleman's boodle, or that it didn't get lost on the way from him to me. The time's running now, and I'm in for the year. My grandfather was a fine old gentleman, and I treated him like a dog. I'm going to do what he directs in that will, no matter what the size of the reward may be. Certainly, that's the eminent proper thing for you to do. But, but keep your wits about you. If a fellow with that neck can't find any money where money's been known to exist, it must be buried pretty deep. Your grandfather was a trifle eccentric, I judge, but not a fool by any manner of means. The situation appeals to my imagination, Jack. I like the idea of it. The lost treasure in the whole business. Lord, what a salad that is. Cheer up, comrade. You're as grim as an owl. Whereupon we fell to talking of people and places we'd known in other lands. We spent the next day together, and in the evening, at my hotel, he criticized my effects while I packed, in his usual ironical vein. "'You're not going to take those things with you, I hope.' He indicated the rifles and several revolvers which I brought from the closet and threw upon the bed. "'They make me homesick for the jungle,' I answered. He drew from its cover the heavy rifle I had used last on a leopard hunt and tested its weight. "'Precious little use you'll have for this!' "'Better let me take it back to the sod to use on the landlords. "'I say, Jack, are we never to seek our fortunes together again? "'We hit it off pretty well, old man, come to think of it. "'I don't like to lose you.' "'He bent over the straps of the rifle case with unnecessary care, "'but there was a quaver in his voice that was not like Larry Donovan. "'Come with me now,' I said, wheeling upon him. "'Well, I'd rather be with you than any other living man, Jack Glenarm.' "'but I can't think of it. "'I have my own troubles, "'and moreover, "'you've got to stick it out there alone. "'It's part of the game "'the old gentleman set up for you, "'as I understand it. "'Go ahead, collect your fortune, "'and then if I haven't been hanged "'in the meantime, 
"'We'll join forces later. "'There's no chap anywhere with a pleasanter knack "'at spending money than your old friend L.D.' "'He grinned, and I smiled ruefully, "'knowing that we must soon part again, "'for Larry was one of the few men I'd ever called friend, "'and this meeting had only quickened my old affection for him. "'I suppose,' he continued, "'you accept as gospel truth "'what that fellow tells you about the estate. "'I should be a little wary if I were you.' Now, I've been kicking around here for a couple of weeks, dodging the detectives, and incidentally reading the newspapers. Perhaps you don't understand that this estate of John Marshall Glenarm has been talked about a good bit. I didn't know it, I admitted, lamely. Larry had always been able to instruct me about most matters. It was wholly possible that he could speak wisely about my inheritance. You couldn't know, when you were coming from the Mediterranean on a steamer. "'but the house out there and the mysterious disappearance of the property "'have been fully discussed. "'You are evidently an object of some public interest.' "'And he drew from his pocket a newspaper cutting. "'Here's a sample.' "'He read it. "'John Glenarm, the grandson of John Marshall Glenarm, "'the eccentric millionaire who died suddenly in Vermont last summer, "'arrived on the Max and Kuki from Naples yesterday. "'Under the terms of his grandfather's will,' Glenarm is required to reside for a year at a curious house established by John Marshall Glenarm near Lake Annandale, Indiana. This provision was made, according to friends of the family, to test young Glenarm's staying qualities, as he has, since his graduation from MIT five years ago, distributed a considerable fortune left him by his father in contemplating the wonders of the old world. It is reported. That'll do. "'Signs and wonders I have certainly beheld, "'and if I spent the money, I submit that I got my money back. "'I paid my bill and took a hansom for the ferry, "'Larry with me, chafing away drolly with his old zest. "'He crossed with me, and as the boat drew out into the river, "'a silence fell upon us, "'the silence that is possible only between old friends. "'As I looked back at the lights of the city, "'something beyond the sorrow at parting from a comrade touched me. A sense of foreboding, of coming danger, crept into my heart. But I was going upon the tamest possible excursion. For the first time in my life I was submitting to the direction of another, albeit one who lay in the grave. How like my grandfather it was to die leaving this compulsion upon me. My mood changed suddenly, and as the boat bumped at the pier I laughed. Bah! These men! said Larry. "'What men?' I demanded, giving my bags to a porter. "'These men who are in love,' he said. "'I know the signs. Mooning, silence, sudden inexplicable laughter. "'I hope I'll not be in jail when you're married. "'You'll be in a long time if they hold you for that. "'Well, here's my train.' "'We talked of old times and of future meetings during the few minutes that remained. "'You can write me at my place of rustication,' I said. "'scribbling Annadale, Wabana County, Indiana, on a card. "'Now, if you need me at any time, I'll come to you wherever you are. "'If you understand that, old man, goodbye. "'Write me, Jack. Care of my father. He'll have my address, "'though this last row of mine made him pretty hot.' "'I passed through the gate and down the long train to my sleeper. "'Turning with my foot on the step, I waved a farewell to Larry, "'who stood outside watching me. "'In a moment, the heavy train was moving slowly out into the night upon its westward journey.
We'll return to Chapter 3 right after this sponsor message. And now, Chapter 3. Chapter Title, The House of a Thousand Candles. Annandale derives its chief importance from the fact that two railway lines intersect there. The Chicago Express paused only for a moment while the porter deposited my things beside me on the platform. Light streamed from the open door of the station. A few idlers paced the platform, staring into the windows of the cars. The village hackman languidly solicited my business. Suddenly, out of the shadows, came a tall, curious figure of a man clad in a long ulster. As I write, it is with a quickening of the sensation I received on the occasion of my first meeting with Bates. His lank, gloomy figure rises before me now, and I hear his deep, melancholy voice as, touching his hat respectfully, he said, "'Beg pardon, sir. Is this Mr. Glenarm?' "'I am Bates, from Glenarm House. Mr. Pickering wired me to meet you, sir.' "'Yes, to be sure,' I said. The hackman was already gathering up my traps, and I gave him my trunk checks. "'How far is it?' I asked, my eyes resting a little regretfully, I must confess, on the rear lights of the vanishing train. Uh, two miles, sir,' Bates replied. "'There's no way over but the hack in the winter. "'In summer the steamer comes right onto our dock.' "'My legs need stretching. I'll walk,' I suggested, "'drawing the cool air into my lungs. "'It was a still, starry October night, "'and its freshness was grateful after the hot sleeper. "'Bates accepted the suggestion without comment. "'We walked to the end of the platform,' "'for the hackman was already tumbling my trunks about, "'and after we'd seen them piled upon his nondescript wagon, "'I followed Bates down through the broad, quiet street of the village. "'There was more of Annandale than I had imagined, "'and several tall smokestacks loomed here and there in the thin starlight. "'Brickyards, sir,' said Bates, waving his hand at the stacks. "'It's a considerable center for that kind of business.' "'Bricks without straw?' "'I asked as we passed a radiant saloon "'that blazed upon the boardwalk. "'A big pardon, sir, "'but such places are the ruin of men.' "'On which remark I based a mental note "'that Bates wished to impress me "'with his own rectitude. "'He swung along beside me, "'answering questions with dogged brevity. "'Clearly he was a man "'who had reduced human intercourse "'to a basis of necessity. "'I was to be shut up with him for a year.' and he was not likely to prove a cheerful jailer. My feet struck upon a graveled highway at the end of the village street, and I heard suddenly the lapping of water. "'It's the lake, sir. This road leads right out to the house,' Bates explained. I was doomed to meditate pretty steadily, I imagined, on the beauty of the landscape in these parts, and I was rejoiced to know that it was not all cheerless prairie or gloomy woodland.' The wind-freshened cud blew sharply upon us off the water. "'The fishing's actually quite good in season. Mr. Glenarm used to take great pleasure in it.' "'Bass. Yes, sir. Mr. Glenarm held there was nothing quite equal to a black bass. I liked the way the fellow spoke of my grandfather. He was evidently a loyal retainer. No doubt he could summon from the past many pictures of my grandfather, and I determined to encourage his confidence.' Any resentment I felt on first hearing the terms of my grandfather's will had passed. He had treated me as well as I deserved, 
and the least I could do was accept the penalty he had laid upon me in a sane and amiable spirit. This train of thought occupied me as we tramped along the highway. The road now led away from the lake and through a heavy wood. Presently on the right loomed a dark barrier, and I put out my hand and touched a wall of rough stone that rose to a height of about eight feet. "'What is this, Bates?' I asked. "'This is Glenarm land, sir.' The wall was one of your grandfather's ideas. It's a quarter of a mile long, and cost him a pretty penny, I warned you. The road turns off from the lake now, but the Glenarm property is all lakefront. So, there was a wall about my prison house. I grinned cheerfully to myself. When, a few minutes later, my guide, paused at an arched gateway in the long wall, drew from his overcoat a bunch of keys and fumbled at the lock of an iron gate. I felt the spirit of adventure quicken within me. The gate clicked behind us, and Bates found a lantern and lighted it with the ease of custom. I use this gate because it's nearer. The regular entrance is farther down the road. Keep close, sir, as the timber isn't much cleared. The undergrowth was indeed heavy, and I followed the lantern of my guide with difficulty. In the darkness the place seemed as wild and rough as a tropical wilderness. "'Only a little further,' rose Bates's voice ahead of me, and then, "'There's the light, sir,' and lifting my eyes I stumbled over the roots of a great tree, and I saw for the first time the dark outlines of Glenarm House. "'Here we are, sir,' exclaimed Bates, stamping his feet upon a walk. I followed him to what I assumed to be the front door of the house, where a lamp shone brightly at either side of a massive entrance. Bates flung it open without ado, and I stepped quick into a great hall that was lighted dimly by candles fastened into brackets on the walls. "'I hope you've not expected too much, Mr. Glenarm,' said Bates, with a tone of mild apology. "'It's very incomplete for living purposes.' "'Well, we've got to make the best of it,' I answered, though without much cheer. The sound of our steps reverberated and echoed in the well of a great staircase. There was not, as far as I could see, a single article of furniture in the whole place. "'Here's something you'll like better, sir,' and Bates paused far down the hall and opened a door. A single candle made a little pool of light in what I felt to be a large room. I was prepared for a disclosure of barren ugliness and waited, in heart-sick foreboding, for the silent guide to reveal a dreary prison. "'Please sit here, sir,' said Bates, "'while I make a better light.' He moved through the dark room with perfect ease, struck a match, lighted a taper, and went swiftly and softly about. He touched the taper to one candle after another. They seemed to be everywhere, and one from the dark a faint twilight that yielded slowly to a growing mellow splendor of light. I have often watched the acolytes in dim cathedrals of the old world set countless candles ablaze on magnificent altars, always with awe for the beauty of the spectacle. But in this unknown house, the austere serving man summoned from the shadows a lovelier and more bewildering enchantment. Youth alone, of beautiful things, is lovelier than light. The lines of the walls receded as the light increased, and the raptor red ceiling drew away. "'luring the eyes upward. "'I rose with a smothered exclamation on my lips "'and stared about, "'snatching off my hat in reverence 
as the spirit of the place wove its spell about me. Everywhere there were books that covered the walls to the ceiling, with only long French windows and an enormous fireplace breaking the line. Above the fireplace a massive dark oak chimney breast further emphasized the grand scale of the room. From every conceivable place, from shelves built for the purpose, from brackets that thrust out long arms among the books, from a great crystal chandelier suspended from the ceiling, and from the breast of the chimney, innumerable candles blazed with dazzling brilliancy. I exclaimed in wonder and pleasure as Bates paused, his sorcerer's wand in hand. Mr. Glenarm was very fond of candlelight. He liked to gather up candlesticks, and his collection is very fine. He called his place the House of a Thousand Candles. There's only about a hundred here, but it was one of his conceits that when the house was finished there would be a thousand lights. He had quite a joking way, your grandfather. It suited his humor to call it a thousand. He enjoyed his own pleasantry, sir. I fancy he did, I replied, staring in bewilderment. Oil lamps might be more suited to your own taste, sir, but your grandfather would not have them. Old brass and copper were specialties with him, and he had a particular taste, Mr. Glenarm had, in glass candlesticks. He held that the crystal was most effective of all. I'll go and let in the baggagemen, and then serve you some supper. He went somberly out, and I examined the room with amazed and delighted eyes. It was fifty feet long and half as wide. The hardwood floor was covered with handsome rugs. Every piece of furniture was quaint or interesting. Carved in the heavy oak paneling above the fireplace, in large old English letters, was the inscription, The Spirit of Man is the Candle of the Lord. And on either side, great candelabra sent long arms across the hearth. All the books seemed related to architecture. German and French works stood side by side among those by English and American authorities. I found archaeology represented in a division where all the titles were Latin or Italian. I opened several cabinets that contained sketches and drawings, all in careful order, and in another I found an elaborate card catalogue, evidently the work of a practiced hand. The minute examination was too much for me. I threw myself onto a great chair that might have been a spoil from a cathedral, satisfied to enjoy the general effect. To find an apartment so handsome and so marked by good taste in the midst of an Indiana woods staggered me. To be sure, in approaching the house I had seen only a dark bulk that conveyed no sense of its character or proportions, and certainly the entrance hall had not prepared me for the beauty of this room. I was so lost in contemplation that I did not hear a door open behind me. The respectful, mournful voice of Bates announced, "'There's a bite ready for you, sir.' I followed him through the hall to a small, high, wainscoted room where a table was simply set. "'This is what Mr. Glenarm called the refectory. The dining room, on the other side of the house, is unfinished. He took his own meals here.' The library was the main thing with him. He never lived to finish the house. More is the pity, sir. He would have made something very handsome of it if he'd had a few years more. But he hoped, sir, 
that you'd see it completed. That was his wish. Yes, to be sure, I replied. He brought cold fowl and a salad, and produced a bit of Stilton of unmistakable authenticity. I trust the ale is cool to your liking. It's your grandfather's favorite, if I may say it, sir. I liked the fellow's humility. He served me with a grave deference and an accustomed hand. Candles and crystal holders shed an agreeable light upon the table. The room was snug and comfortable, and hickory logs in a small fireplace cracked cheerily. If my grandfather had designed to punish me with loneliness as his weapon, his shadow, if it lurked near, must have been grievously disappointed. I had long been inured to my own society. I had often eaten my bread alone, and I found a pleasure in the quiet of the strange unknown house. There stole over me, too, the satisfaction that I was at last obeying a wish of my grandfather's, that I was doing something he would have me do. I was touched by the traces everywhere of his interest in what was to him the art of arts. There was something quite fine in his devotion to it. The little refectory had its Arab distinction, though it was without decoration. There had been, we always said in the family, something whimsical or even morbid in my grandsire's devotion to architecture, but I felt that it had really appealed to something dignified and noble in his own mind and character, and a gentler mood than I had known in years possessed my heart. He had asked little of me, and I determined in that little I would not fail. Bates gave me my coffee, put matches within reach, and left the room. I drew out my cigarette case and was holding it half-opened, when the glass in the window back of me cracked sharply. A bullet whistled over my head, struck the opposite wall, and fell, flattened and marred, on the table, under my hand. We'll return to the House of a Thousand Candles next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Thank you so much for joining us. Please share our show with others and send us a review at 1001 Stories for the Road if you're enjoying it. Meanwhile, everyone take care, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.